Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. One of the world's most influential philosophers was born 200 years ago. Karl Marx's ideas in the Communist Manifesto and Das Kapital have undeniable staying power. We're going to learn a few things today about Marx the man. Then dig into how his philosophy is being applied today. We'll hear from a professor who teaches a class on Marx's masterwork, Das Kapital. Don't forget you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. For most of us, Karl Marx is more a grim-bearded caricature than a real person. We're going to try to get to know a few things about Marx the Man with Mary Gabriel. She's the author of Love and Capital, Karl and Jenny Marx, and The Birth of a Revolution. It was nominated for a National Book Award a few years ago, and Mary Gabriel wrote a letter to Marx on his 200th birthday in the Los Angeles Times yesterday. Thanks a lot for joining us, Mary Gabriel. Hi, Jerome. Thanks for having me. Uh, what did you want Marx to know on his 200th birthday? That um, what, what, you, what did you want to tell him? Oh, there was so much to say, as you can imagine, to cover all that time. But, you know, often um, when I was working on my book, I would think, you know, oh, my God, what would Marx think of today? And uh, so I decided rather than talk about, you know, what he means to us, I thought I'd fill him in through a letter on the things that had happened over the past century and where we are today, which, as I said in the letter, isn't all that much different than where he left off. One of the things you pointed out was how much he admired Abraham Lincoln in the letter. Um, that would probably be surprising to a lot of people. It really, I think, I think it's one of these uh, one of these um, elements in Marx's life that would surprise people, and it's so telling because, you know, most of us know about Marx either through things that have been done in his name or through things other people have written about him. But what I tried to do, and one of the reasons I wrote the book, is I wanted to introduce Marx, the man, the actual individual, and sort of demystify him, take him down from that you know, pedestal in Highgate Cemetery, that, that plinth that was built as a monument to his life, and, and make him one of us, make him a living, breathing person. And one of the letters that I came across, um, some of the letters I came across between he and Friedrich Engels, involved the U.S. Civil War because they were corresponding with each other quite a bit during that time. And in them, Marx talks about Lincoln and he, how he truly admires him. And in fact, he was so excited by Lincoln's election that on behalf of workers, these sort of mythical workers he was dealing with because he didn't really have any kind of following in those days, he wrote a letter um, to to Lincoln congratulating him on his election and saying, you know, how great this was for workers around the world that a man like him could be elected to this country that Marx actually thought had such wonderful potential as a democracy. And then when when Lincoln died, when he was assassinated, Marx was absolutely stricken and he, he cleared his desk of everything else he was working on and sat down to write a letter to Andrew, uh, to, to the, actually to the New York uh, Tribune, where Marx worked as a journalist, but also to sort of speaking to U.S. politicians and saying, you know, this man you've lost is, you know, so tremendous and such an inspiration, and basically don't make a mess of it in his wake. And in fact, you know, it's exactly what happened. 
Uh, so Marx was interested, you know, in, in overthrowing all, uh, you know, it sounds like in the Communist Manifesto, he's interested in overthrowing all forms of oppression and we should, you know, just have a massive revolution. But this, explain what that means. And uh, like for, you know, he seemed to admire a democracy and uh, Abraham Lincoln here and his role. Uh, how does that fix with what we think we know about Marx? Right. It's when you when you you have to look at Marx. I mean, Marx was an active writer, philosopher, journalist, economist, social scientist for about forty years, and was writing throughout that period. So, as with any of us, you know, your ideas change as you evolve and as you mature. And so, the man who wrote the Communist Manifesto was a young man. He was only twenty-seven, and he was really still very much playing at the idea of revolution. He had suffered a little bit personally, but not too much. He had been um, he'd been introduced to the work to working people at through Engels in Manchester, and had been really affected by that. But his friends were basically still intellectuals, and so he the Communist Manifesto is a call to revolution by a man who can by a young man who can see a problem, see how it's going to develop. You know what some of the phrases he uses in that are so remarkable because they absolutely describe our situation today. And when he wrote about them, capitalism as it in in the Communist Manifesto, he doesn't even use the word capitalism because it had hadn't actually been coined yet. So, I think that when you think about what Marx wanted and what he proposed, you ha- you look at many different Marxes. There's the Marx of the Communist Manifesto. There's the Marx of Capital. Many years later, there's the Marx of 1850 London. You know, who worked as a journalist. But basically what he said in, a, in a, his last public appearance, uh, which was given in 1872 in Amsterdam, I think it really summed up in his own words what he believed. And he said that in many countries, any, every, all the change you want to be able to affect can be done through the ballot box, that some countries are advanced enough and free enough that people simply have to make clear what it is they want and what it, what it is they need and go to the polls and vote for a candidate and support those candidates who will realize those ambitions. But he said in other countries, that will never be a possibility because the leadership is too repressive. The the idea, the very notion of freedom is too foreign. And in those countries, what has to be done is there has to be a revolution from the ground up. And one of his most consistent and important points was that in those cases, you can't just sort of tweak the edges. You have to go to the very base of that society, the very you know foundations of a government or or a system of governing, and and change it from that from that place on. Otherwise, um, your revolution will be unsuccessful. And and he he used as evidence to support that the 1848 revolts in Europe, which I mentioned in that letter in the LA Times. It was like the Arab Spring that we've experienced this incredible spontaneous outbreak of freedom and opposition and revolution. And it was the only, so far to date, the only Europe-wide revolution by people against the rulers. And while it was euphoric at the beginning, like the Arab Spring, it quickly fell apart and the counter-revolution triumphed because the opposition, the revolutionaries, the people on the street had no real plan. All they knew, all they knew, and all they agreed on, was that the status quo doesn't work for the most people. I'm talking with Mary Gabriel. She's the author of Love and Capital. We're talking about Karl Marx. He was born 200 years ago on May 5th. 
I wanted to ask a question about him uh, as a personality because he seems to have had a uh, kind of positive attributes and then some really kind of negative attributes. Um, he said interesting things that make him sound very kind, like surround yourself with people who make you happy, people who make you laugh, when you, when, who help you when you're in need. Um, he's, uh, he sounds like a generous spirit in some ways. He married well. He, uh, he seemed like um, kind of a charming guy on some level. He was a charming guy on some levels. I mean, he was exceedingly charming. But then, like all geniuses or, you know, artists, they have this drive that makes them really, in some cases, intolerable. You know, his entire motivation in his life was his work. And while he enjoyed dancing and he enjoyed drinking and he enjoyed cigars and he loved his family, um, he he had he he was he was absolutely driven to the point of being unconscious of other people's needs. And so some of his uh, reputation of being an autocrat comes from that, you know, people who didn't look at him as, as a driven thinker or a driven literary man or a driven artist just thought he was a selfish bastard. And in fact, there was a really great anecdote where his family has been driven out of Europe basically after these 1848 revolts and his wife, Jenny, arrived in London with several children in tow, and she was seven months pregnant. She'd come by ship from France, and the kids were sick. She was miserable. Everything was horrible, and they arrived in London, where she'd never been, and she didn't really speak English. And Marx was already in London, but he didn't meet her at the boat. And his excuse was that he had some sort of illness. But in fact, the night before, he had been at a meeting of a group of workers. So he had he had the strength to go you know, do his party work, but not the strength to see his family. And when I when I wrote about that, I thought, hmm, here's an example of, you know, of Marx, the person I suspected was not the, you know, not, not the ideal husband in any way. But then you have to step back a moment and think, you know, here is a man who's focused his entire life, he thinks, not on, it wasn't to promote himself. He wasn't an egotist by any means. What he wanted to do was to promote this greatest group to help this greater group, mankind. And he just expected that his own family and all of those people around him would join him in this effort happily and see the wisdom of his ways and understand his motivations and his and his selfishness. And so, yeah, he was a very flawed character, but it made him a much, much richer character to write about. So uh, he would he was intolerant of criticism of his work. I mean, I've read some really bitter things about um, him when people try to say, "Hey, yeah, but what about this?" And he does he yeah. didn't really want to exchange ideas. He was extremely arrogant intellectually, and you know, I mean, to give him credit, when you look about you look at what he was writing and when he was writing it, he was you know kind of a century ahead of his time, um, and the people around him, the socialists and the labor movement of his day were very utopian, you know, let's just get along and everything will go along. And he, after experiencing Manchester in 1845 and seeing, you know, the real degradation um, of mankind in this new industrial system that was eating up families and spitting them out and had absolutely no regard for child labor and no regard for, um, uh, you know, the, the very basics that men and women and children needed to survive. After he was came face to face with that, he had no time whatsoever for half measures. 
Uh, and he and he was he was ruthless uh, when it came to anyone who disagreed with him. And he was also very clever. He if he needed people for whatever reason, whether it be financial or he needed their support for you know to back an organization he was involved in, he knew how to jolly them along and, and get them to cooperate. And he and he could be charming, but behind the scenes, in his letters to his family and his letters to Engels, he was absolutely he was he was a real tyrant when it came to anyone who challenged his ideas. And that's just simply because he believed he was right. And you know you can argue whether he was or not, but but he had such faith in his ideas. And indeed, he had to because he had given up everything. He had sacrificed his his entire life you know, for these ideas. He was really an unsuccessful guy who had a hard time um, uh, helping his family along and, you know, just getting his family what they needed. Right. His only real job, which is also very interesting, um, was working for the, a New York newspaper, the New York Daily Tribune. As a journalist, he was, he was the European correspondent for this daily paper. And uh, and that was the that was the his most steady employment, which he had for about seven years. And other than that, he had no income. Engels, luckily for Marx and his family, volunteered to work at his father's at his own father's uh, manufacturing plant in Manchester through most of his adult life in order to support the Marx family because he knew Marx was hopeless when it came to money. He, as his mother famously said, you know, you write about it, but you have no idea how to earn it. And and he never did earn any money, and he never made any money off of his political or economic writings. It was only his journalism, and that was, you know, two dollars an article. How did he get along with Frederick Eng- Engels all this time? Uh, if if the if, I imagine there would be some tension in that relationship. No, they were they were. It's one of the really great um, uh, friendships and. Um, literary relationships in history, literary and political hi- relationships in history, they are they were absolutely you know in complete agreement politically. Temperamentally, they were extremely they, they were opposite. Marx was kind of a grubby you know kind of heavy set grubby um, uh, intellectual you know work behind his desk had no no regard for society. Society meaning high society. Engels rode the hunt. Was you know wore fine tailored clothes, was uh, drinker of fine wines, lover of women, a real bon vivant, you know, a real businessman of the nineteenth century, but he was a radical to the core, and so he was also a military man, and he saw in Marx, who he met in eighteen forty four in Paris, he met someone who he thought I I love you know I I respect his ideas and I could serve this man, and so he basically was the first inductee into Marx's army. You know, Frederick Engels dedicated his life to Marx and his family and Marx's work. And after Marx died in 1883, though Engels had a backlog of his own manuscripts to get through, he put them aside and worked on Marx's because he felt that of the two, his ideas were the more important. I'm talking with Mary Gabriel. She's the author of Love and Capital. We're talking about Karl Marx uh, 200 years after his birth. Uh, I wanted to ask a question about Marx and religion. Um, he seems – a lot of his quotes that people probably run across, um, it seems like he really does not like religion. The first requisite uh, for the happiness of the people is the abolition of religion. Religion is the impotence of the human mind to deal with occurrences it cannot understand. Uh, what, what's his faith background and why, what, what happened there? Yeah. Well, Marx was – his. Marx's father and mother were Jewish, and they were born in. He was born in Trier in, in Western Prussia, and in Marx's father's um, adulthood, 
he, he Marx's father had to make a decision to remain a Jew and practice law or to become a Lutheran and, and or remain a Jew and not practice law or become a Lutheran and be able to have continuous law practice. And so at, Marx was born into a household where his father was Lutheran. When he was sick, when Marx was six, he had to become Lutheran as well because he wouldn't have been able to go to public school if he'd been a Jew. So Marx was raised in this sort of um, contradictory atmosphere. His family was very much old school Jewish family. He came from a long line of rabbis. And yet in the town where they were, where they lived, they were known as Lutherans. So there was, there was a lot, there were a lot of conflicting intellectual ideas concerning religion and Marx's background. But what you have to remember, Marx's re- reaction to religion was that was a reaction against the powers that be, not the powers outside of you know man's knowledge, but the powers, the actual material powers, because kings were considered to be divine. So kings were the handmaidens, you know, they were the the masters on earth, God's masters on earth, and. Um, what Marx's initial rebellion was was against kings and the the very absurd notion of divine rights of kings. And so Marx's initial political ideas took on both thrones and churches. And as far as Judaism goes, Marx saw that as another pillar that upheld society in Prussia in those days because Jews were given the freedom to operate in the financial sphere, which kept the princes and the king's coffers full. Um, And so to Marx's idea, if you get rid of religion in one fell swoop, you get rid of kings, you get rid of the oppression of churches that sort of lulled people or what he called it, the opium of the people, lulled people into the belief that if they sacrifice today, that is sacrifice in favor of a king or a prince today, they'll find a place in heaven. And the third prong being Judaism, being the finances that keep this corrupt system going. So that's where his ideas about religion came from. And surprisingly, um, he was actually, though, very tender-hearted when it came to Christianity, as Christ as a philosophical and historical figure. Uh, Marx had a lot of um, interesting conversations with his daughters about that. He called Christ uh, a, a poor man, a good carpenter who was killed by rich men. And he he often talked about Christianity as a as a religion that he could respect because it taught um, the respect adults should have for children, or it was the religion that taught the love of the child. But as far as regular religion goes, established religions, Marx had absolutely no time for it because once again he thought that it it sort of did what socialists of his time did. It took people out of their daily reality where the need was greatest and and offered them this airy-fairy kind of happy land somewhere in the sky. And that actually did nothing to improve their material and daily life. Uh, lastly, on the personal level, uh, he was someone who uh, had an affair and a, uh, a son with the child, uh, the, the the maid, the person who yes. was the household uh, person there. Um, uh-huh. what, what was uh, what kind of guy was he? He drank a lot. He liked drinking. What, 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 what was he kind of um, out of character for his time, or any different than other people? Well, no. As a matter of fact, despite the fact that he had this child with. Alenchen, who was a family maid who was almost like a sister to his wife, to Marx's wife, Jenny. Um, Marx wasn't a womanizer, and he was actually sort of much better behaved than most men of his generation in his class. But 
he does, he did have this, you know, horrible misstep and whether it happened once or it happened many times, it isn't clear uh, with Lynchin. And I think that one of the things that happens with him is whenever Jenny or the children leave him, he kind of goes to pieces. He really needed them as an anchor in his life. And so there was one period where Jenny left him to go to Holland to ask for money from her uncle, from his uncle rather. And he left, she left Carl alone. And it seems to be that it was during that time that Lynchin became pregnant and it was it makes perfect sense because Marx was an absolute basket case unless his family around was around. But the but the way he treated Freddie, his son, his illegitimate son, son was inexcusable, inexcusable because he was he was sent away to live with a family in East London, which was, you know, a, Marx lived in a terrible neighborhood. But East London was worse by several degrees. And Freddie didn't really come back into their lives until about 20 years later. Wow. Um, Mary Gabriel is the author of Love and Capital, Carl and Jenny Marks, and the Birth of a Revolution. It was nominated for a National Book Award a few years ago. And she wrote a letter to Marks on his 200th birthday in the Los Angeles Times this weekend. Thanks a lot for joining us and letting us get to know Carl Marks the man. Thank you very much. Coming up after the break, we'll talk more about Karl Marx and discuss his masterwork, Kapital. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Karl Marx uh, turned 200 this weekend on May 5th, and we're talking about Karl Marx and his philosophy and his relevance today. With me is Kaveh Asane. He's Assistant Professor of International Studies and Critical Ethics Studies at DePaul University. He teaches a course on Marx's Capital. We are going to take a few phone calls on Marx and his work and how it applies today. The number is 312-923-9239. That's 312-923-WBEZ. And it's great to see you, Kaveh. How are you? Very good to see you, Joe. Uh, tell us a little about Capital, because I think most people hear about it, but nobody really ever picks it up and reads it and you hear, see quotes from it. But uh, what is Marx's masterwork really like? Well, um it's a it's a fascinating work. He only managed to finish the first volume uh, before he died. Uh, the second, third, and in some ways the fourth volume were kind of compiled after his passing. There's quite a bit of controversy as to how they were put together. You know, so there are many passages in the subsequent volumes that you know he was very kind of a you know reticent about or um, kind of. You know, it was very conditional, but then, you know, when Engels was publishing it or Kautsky, you know, 
um, another scholar was publishing it. They were, you know, they kind of reformulated in much more definitive way. So that, you know, that's the kind of, um, uh, you know, criticism that lingers. But in, initially, he kind of he conceived it as a series of seven volumes that would look at different aspects of capitalism. Uh, and investigate them critically. I mean, the book is called uh, A Critique of Political Economy, which is the way that political science and economics were being kind of conceptualized at at the time. So he really kind of saw it as a critique. Uh, The first volume is a masterpiece. I mean, there's a reason why this book, despite its difficulty and challenges, is probably one of the most influential volumes in, in the field of social and political inquiry ever written in the modern era. Um, it's very difficult. It's challenging. He kind of, he warns his readers. He wrote it actually for, you know, his working class readers and the socialist activists that were kind of close to him. He wanted to influence them. Uh, it's it's challenging. It's, yeah, it's a long book, but once you kind of slug your way through it, uh, it is transformative. It is really, an, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an unequal work of eloquence and rigorous analysis. What is the thing that he thinks about um, our our political economy and, and capital and the way it, 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 he believes that it's going to uh, devour itself in a way? Well, uh, I mean, you know, he planned to write this the answer to this question in you know seven volumes. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know how much you know in a soundbite I can I can respond to that. But I mean, I think each volume of Capital is you know really focuses on one aspect, and then he kind of he pulls things together. So it's kind of frustrating because. He begins the first volume with looking at the process of production, but maybe the you know like you know factory production and so on, and then, and then he goes on in subsequent volumes to look at you know banking and circulation of capital and so. On. But what is really kind of maybe a good answer to your question that is he begins with this with this statement uh, you know in the very first volume of Capital, and he says capital appears as this mysterious thing. Um, uh, you know, the, and the, the the basic unit of capitalism, the commodity, the fact that we buy and sell things that we need and everything can be commodified. This leads to this kind of almost religious mystification that is re- really the premise of capitalism, that this is human nature. This is the way society has to be. And he then proceeds to kind of dismantle this idea by really kind of doing this rigorous analysis of it, looking at the intellectual history of people who've written about this. Uh, and looking at the way that capitalism is kind of unfolding. So at the core of his argument, one of the points that he makes is that uh, because capitalism looks at nature, looks at human beings, looks at society in this um, kind of in, in this purely market-oriented way, it leads to cyclical crises, and those crises maybe can be managed politically from outside the market and capitalist system, but they're inevitable and they can lead to uh, to a social collapse eventually. So he, he saw crisis as really kind of built into the structures of capitalism. Uh, we've had a few callers, and um, one, John, asked, um, should you read Hegel as a primer before you dig into Capital? And Hegel was a big influence on Marx. Uh, is that an important thing to do before you uh, No. Begin? I mean, you should also read the Bible or, you know, <laughs> many other things. I think capital can stand by itself. It can be argued by itself. Uh, certainly good to kind of expand your horizon, see the, all the sorts of influences. 
that shaped Marx, but it really is, you know, I agree with the argument that capital is a break with Hegel and the Hegelian system. And What did Marx like about Hegel? Well, Hegel is really kind of like the philosopher of the French Revolution, and he kind of, he introduced a philosophy of history. He began to look at history as the work of, you know, as the political work of human beings, and, uh, you know, not preordained, uh, you know, d- divine intervention or, you know, an inevitable unfolding of human nature, you know, as unchanging biological human nature. Uh, but he kind of really favored the kind of role of, um, you know, human thinking uh, and the spirit, as he called it, in, in looking at history. And Marx kind of famously said that, look, I reversed this. I, you know, I think really is the the material conditions, the the actual everyday life that we live, uh, that kind of really shapes history. But history is a human-made process, and it's this interaction between human beings and society, and it's imbued with relations of power. It's nothing is about it is preordained. We're talking about Karl Marx with Kaveh Asane from DePaul University, and the number to call is 312-923-9239. And Adam from Uptown uh, asked if there are any examples of societies that have instituted Marx's theories successfully. Um, is there anyone who does a good job with Marx? And the Chinese went and built him a statue, I hear, in his hometown of Trier. Um, but they seem to be doing something the uh, completely the Look, Marx was, I mean, this is a misconception. You know, Marx was not a prophet. He did not, you know, he was not a... He was not coming forth with recipes for how to make society. And I was saying human beings make society. What he was offering was a critique, a very kind of trenchant and fundamental critique of capitalism. I think what's more important, you know, so no, there are many societies that have been built on the premises of Marxism. But Marxism, Marx famously said, look, if this is Marxism, I'm not a Marxist. I'm not, I'm not religious. You know, I don't think this, there's, I'm not philosophizing about history or, you know, I'm not a prophet of history. Uh, I think why this system doesn't work and why it can and should be and ought to be transcended. But how it is transcended is the work of politics which and living human beings. Now, to answer Adam's question, I think the modern society that we live in is – a lot of it is constructed on the ideas of Marx, the idea of equality, feminism. Uh, you know, critiques of the ecological impact of um, – uh, you know, of of mass consumer capitalist society. These are all rooted in Marx. Uh, Feminism? How do, you, how do you figure? Yeah, the idea that, you know, uh, your gender is not, uh, you know, is not that inevitable, um, you know, uh, uh, God-given uh, determinant of who you are, but social identities that are, are constructed. They're constructed within systems of ownership, of political power, um, of of ideas and ideologies. This is kind of like the root of a lot of the critical social sciences and, you know, grassroots activism. You know, the fact that, you know, the, the idea that everybody should be allowed to vote as based on a citizen, this is as much rooted in Marx as anybody else. Liberalism and capitalism did not believe in social and political equality. I mean, look at the American Constitution. It did not give the right to vote to slaves or to non-Catholics, I mean, non-Protestants or non-propertied individuals. Uh, you know, but the idea that, you know, of fundamental equality, that everybody's part of the system, that people working are actually producing the wealth, not people owning 
land or people or you know these are kind of ideas rooted in Marx. Did he write a chapter on feminism and not at all? Is there something? Uh, no, he did not, but Engels did. I mean, Engels wrote a very, uh, very important book, The Origins of the States, uh, you know, Private Property and Family. And uh, they kind of, they had this division of labor. Um, you look at like the second wave of feminism in particular. They were, I mean, I'm not, let's be clear. I'm not saying Marx is, you know, is the forefather of these, yeah. but he's actually one of the, he is one of the most influential uh, radical thinkers about the idea of equality, including gender equality. So people like, you know, uh, Simone de Beauvoir, she, you know, a lot of the second generation Marxists who kind of combined the idea of class equality with gender equality or, you know, were profoundly influenced by Marx or were Marxists. We're talking about Karl Marx today and we're talking with Kaveh Asane about uh, Marx and Das Kapital. We're going to be back with more after the break. We'll take a few phone calls at 312-923-9239 and talk more about Karl Marx. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're talking about Karl Marx and his influence 200 years on with Kaveh Asani from DePaul University. He teaches a course there on Kapital. Um, what do young people think about when they read Marx today? And uh, do they see the relevance of what, did, what he's saying there in their own lives today? Well, they certainly sign up. Uh, the interest, uh, you know, goes up and down, but it's always steady. And um, uh, I think they find it, first of all, I mean, they think the beginning, I mean, if my course is what you're asking is, you know, they find it, um, they think it's about Marxism, but then they realize that, no, it's about reading actually capital. And they're kind of intrigued. Um and uh, intimidated because it is a massive book. And nowadays it's, you know, the way I, I sort of quote-unquote sell it, which is a, a term that would horrify Marx, uh, you know, is that, look, you know, and na- nowadays you, you know, people think less and less in sustained ways. Uh, they, you know, you, you tangle your way through a difficult text, uh, you know, cover to cover, less and less, and you basically deal in thoughts that come in, I don't know, uh, you know, Twitter, you know, feeds or even in emojis. And, uh, you know, it's difficult to concentrate. So you need to kind of really to think critically and to kind of engage to accept or kind of think through or reject what Marx is saying, you have to really read what he says. You can't just go by preconceptions. And you have to make a decision about this. And I think they, they almost without exception, they're transformed. Uh, and what do they come away with at the end there? Why, when they're transformed, what, do they, what are they transformed into? 
I th- well, the, there are many answers to this. Uh, I mean, they're, you know, in a class of, I don't know, 20 students, 15, 20 students, uh, you get 20 different transformations. But I think what some things are common. Uh, they, uh, they kind of feel a profound sense of accomplishment, having read through this text. They learn, you know, and kind of work their way through it. And, you know, they stumble a lot of, you know, it's uh, a lot of what they think they write um, or they kind of tangle with is uh, remains unclear to them. But nonetheless, they have this profound sense of accomplishment. Uh, and they think that it's, it's that's the, the method of reading and kind of thinking through arguments and not, you know, throwing out preconceived ideas or not accepting them is really kind of important pedagogically. It's really important. Some are kind of, uh, you know, if they're kind of critical of Marxism, which is fair. That's how they, you know, and this is certainly welcomed. Uh, in this class, they they no longer have, uh, you know, the preconceived ideas. Uh, you know, they, they just kind of take it a lot more seriously. Um, and some are uh, some are transformed politically. I mean, they, you know, they kind of, they really are convinced by, you know, Marxist critique of of capitalism. Let's take a call. The number is 312-923-9239. Barb, you're on WBEZ. Hi, I'm just wondering, did Marx write extensively about the relationship between capitalism and war? Uh, capitalism and war. Uh, well, Engels certainly did. I mean, he had a book about, you know, role of force in history. Um, war appears quite often in Marx's historical analysis and writings. Um, he wrote, you know, a lot of his journalism, his commentaries on what was taking place in Italy, his extensive commentaries on the American Civil War because he was the main, and this is interesting, you know, sitting in London commenting for the you know the the you know the 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 father journal you know newspaper to you know the previous newspaper to new york times you know writing about the american civil war from london um was quite you know is a fascinating process uh, you know how that worked out but he wrote about a lot a lot of these wars but um but i think what he if you you know both within capital and his other you know grundrisse and his other historical writings he takes into account the role of the state and organized warfare um, and military in kind of reshaping society, but explicitly writing about war, not that I'm aware of. Uh, did did your, did your students take the what they read in Capital and say, well, income inequality today, our labor conditions, this is all uh, this is all right there. Do they feel like this enhances their understanding of today? Without a doubt. I mean, it's kind of, um, I mean, look, it's, you know, capital, you know, the first volume of capital is not about income equality or inequality. It's about the relevance of work and what kind of work you do, you know, and that work can be with a lot of income or a lot less income. So in some ways, it's about time. It's about productive time. What is it that you do with your life? Those eight hours that you actually kind of work towards you know, uh, you know, uh, producing an income uh, or, you know, building a house or a car or teaching a course. And, you know, the productive time that you use, 
how does it fit within the system? This is this is what the first volume of Capital talks about. I mean, literally, Marx says, look, you know, at the, you know, like after the first couple of chapters, he says, look, now we're going to leave the real world of, you know, the family, the market, you know, the the outside world, and we're going to move within this realm of production and see, you know, how is it that once you, uh, you know, once you kind of sign a contract, a work contract, and you move to to actually do things that are productive in your life, you know, instead of consuming or sleeping or eating or having leisure, you know, do something that's really productive in your life and defines who you are in terms of what you're contributing. Why is it that these relations are so profoundly imbued with hierarchies, inequality, um, political inequality, uh, you know, and devoid of a lot of willpower or, you know, the ability to be to find satisfactory work. So that's what is really kind of focusing on and in and at least like the first volume of capital. From each according to his abilities to each according to his needs. That's a little in the ballpark. Yeah, that's his idea of uh, of a communist society, of a post-capitalist society, a non-capitalist society. I mean, you know, his, his fundamental argument is that, look, now, I mean, his, Marx was very positive about capitalism, what it had accomplished. And he was very explicit saying, look, I'm not a prophet. I can write what I'm writing because I live in this capitalist society because the possibilities of material satisfaction and security have been transformed by capitalism. But what is this system doing to people? What is it doing to the planet? What is it doing to the environment? What is it doing to with creative abilities of human beings, you know, and allowing them to have satisfaction now that, you know, technology allows you to be, you know, not to be at the mercy of forces of nature. Okay, what are you going to do with it? And, you know, he was saying, we have the possibility, material possibility of moving beyond capitalism, you know, to have the system where, you know, each person can contribute what they can and they want and, you know, satisfy their needs at a reasonable level. That's communism for him. Let's take another phone call. Garrett, you're on WBEZ. Hi there. Um, I just thought I'd want to remind our listeners that uh, from what I've understood of social theory, um, uh, works like Marx's are part of perhaps a dialectic process. And so we should understand that uh, our best ideas come out of a uh, constant back and forth of debate. Uh, there is no gospel uh, on either you know, end of the spectrum here. Yeah, I would say, yeah, Marx uh, would agree with you. Uh, I mean, you know, there are some things that you can say are, you know, what, is con- what has been constant in, in capitalism? You know, certainly Marx doesn't have a theory of or an idea about what human history has been, uh, you know, throughout. I mean, he, he throws out this line. He says, look, I mean, all human history has been about class struggle until now. Uh, he does throw this out, you know, but then actually in his writings, he's a lot more kind of subtle about this because he does talk about societies that are not class-based, that are matriarchal, that are, you know, communistic and and so on and so forth. And uh, his big gripe is with the economists of his day and the ideologues of his day, you know, Adam Smith and David Ricardas and all that. But certainly, you know, whatever Marx wrote, he was completely open to kind of questioning it. And he did constantly. And, he, you know, yeah, dialogue. Uh, you know, the, taking the idea that, uh, you know, how you look at the world can can shift based on new evidence, new ways of thinking, you know, critical encounters uh, between different ideas. That was certainly part of uh, how, how he kind of approached his own socialism. I'm talking with Kaveh Asani from DePaul University about Karl Marx 200 years after his birth. And Donovan, you are on WBEZ. 
Hey, Kaveh. Uh, I was wondering, since I took your class a few years ago, what text no. should one read uh, after reading Capital? Like, what should one follow up with? Oi, uh, well, you know, <laughs> uh, hi, Donovan. Um, I don't know, certainly read, you know, volumes two and three. Uh, but, you know, I mean, the literature on Marx and Marxism is, is so vast, as you know, better than me that, uh, you know, um, it's out there. I mean, I think, I think what one can really take from Marx is the method and the way of approaching the world, you know, to, to look at things critically and, uh, uh, you know, and certainly within that, you know, based on what your interests are, uh, you can kind of pursue different kinds of readings. I mean, one of the things that Marx said, I think, which was prescient, you know, he uh, in, in Marx and Engels said in the Communist Manifesto was that, look, if if society doesn't transcend capitalism, if it doesn't go beyond its, you know, the the. Um, his premises, you know, the options are, you know, we may end up with barbarism. Um, and certainly when you look at the world, you know, look at the state of the environment uh, of, of conflict and uh, inequalities that are really based on, you know, the, the consequences of the kind of globalization that we've had, you, you think that, well, you know, he had a point. So I think one of the really pressing things now is to kind of look at how, um, you know, ecology and environment have been affected by the system of mass consumption and and production and to kind of think of ways of countering that and really kind of questioning it. So, but there, there are many other ways of, um, of using Marx and reading further. So, but certainly, you know, volumes two and three are a great place to start. Let's sneak in another call. Vladimir, you're on WBEZ. Hi, uh, my name is Vladimir and actually I was born in Soviet Union. Uh, whatever, whatever you're telling to these people, it seems to be really not exactly 100% right. Uh, Marxist teachings are based on the idea of dictatorship of the working class. And just, you know, mentioning the word dictatorship is really kind of scarce uh, every educated human being. So my question would be, don't you think that uh, at this point, repeating the mistakes and considering how many people were killed during the Soviet regime, Okay, uh, <clears throat> repeating such mistakes here in the United States will be another catastrophe, and probably the catastrophe that the human uh, kind won't be able to recover uh, after. All right, Kave. So he he kind of packs into the uh, question the baggage of communism and the baggage of the Soviet Union. Uh, dictatorship of the mm -hmm. uh, masses is not going to be any good either. Yeah. Uh, no, fair question. Um, I think uh, I don't know how many percentage. You know, what what is the percentage of what I'm saying that is you know true or not? I mean, I'm just saying. Look, you know, read read the text yourselves. Uh, you know, yeah, that's easy enough to do if one wants to have an opinion. Um, um, look, I certainly don't. Um, you know, I mean, you look at any system of thought um christianity for example you know its legacy is not you know it's it's not brilliant you know with uh, what happened to native populations or forced conversions and all that but i certainly don't look at christianity as you know 
uh, as the same as the Crusades or, uh, you know, the eradication of the native populations based on religious ideas of the Catholic Church in, you know, from 15th century onward in, in North America or South America, right? Um, Soviet Union was certainly a, a version, you know, Stalinism was a version of Marxism. It, you know, I'm not going to say it was the false version. You know, it's, I don't care, uh, you know, what what they believed in. But it's really important to also remember that when uh, the coup d'etat, you know, the Leninist coup d'etat in Soviet Union occurred, uh, and I don't mean necessarily in a bad way, you know, it, you know that that was a historical time of its own. Uh, but when the Russian Revolution happened, uh, the greatest critiques of it were other Marxists. I mean, from Rosa Luxemburg onward, uh, you know, the Stalinism is not equal to Marxism, and certainly Marxism is understood and practiced in very, very different ways by, uh, uh, by you know, thousands and thousands of theorists. So the best way to kind of deal with this question is to kind of read what Marx said, read about his history, uh, the context that in which he was writing, what he was trying to get at. Uh, the term dictatorship of proletariat came after the Paris Commune, uh, in 1871, where Parisians rose up to kind of establish a government of their own. Uh, they were slaughtered uh, subsequently by the French army, which kind of reestablished a very corrupt form of capitalism. So, uh, you know, uh, but the term he, uh, dictatorship of proletariat was what he used to say that, look, you know, you want to change the system, you know, force is part of it. You can't just vote, even though you're majority. I guess what he was asking was the first time it's a tragedy, the second time it's a farce. <laughs> That's my only Marx joke of the day. But Kaveh Asani is from DePaul University where he teaches a course on Capital. And thanks a lot for joining us and talking about Marx on the 200th anniversary of his birth. Tomorrow on Worldview, we are going to talk about Kazakhstan with a cowboy journalist here from the United States who visited Kazakhstan. And uh, it's the original birthplace of cowboys. It'll be an interesting conversation tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.